Chapter Two of Cut by the County or Grace Darnell by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Secret of Her Unhappiness. It was seven o'clock when Sir Allan left his guest, and the Colonel had an hour in which to dress for dinner in a leisurely way that gave him full scope for meditation. Naturally, it was of his friend and his friend's wife that he thought. She is very handsome, he told himself, and she is a good woman. I would stake my life that she is true as steel, but she is not happy. There is the rub. There is a mystery. I don't wonder the county people talk. A woman in Lady Darnell's position, with such a husband as Allen and such Jersey cows, his glance wandering involuntarily to the fawn-coloured black-muzzled herd in the pastures yonder, a woman in Lady Darnell's position ought to be happy, and if she is not, well, if she is not, there is a reason. He recalls that calm, finely-cut face, its proud repose, its look of serious thought. No, and again no, it was not the countenance of a happy woman. Alan might rejoice in his destiny, might deem himself blessed among men, but there was a secret canker gnawing at the heart of Alan's wife. Stuart, muttered the colonel presently, widow of Captain Stuart, what Stuart, I wonder? And then he began to recall the men of that name who he had known in the service. They were numerous, but he could remember none of them likely to have left a beautiful widow. And why had not her husband's regiment been mentioned in the advertisement? There must be some screw loose, said the colonel. He found the three ladies and his old chum in the drawing-room when he went down, no one else. I would not have anybody asked for to-night, Weldon, said Sir Allan, for I knew that you and I would want to talk, and it's hard lines for other men to sit by while a couple of Anglo-Indian fogies go over their old stories together. Dinner was announced almost immediately. The colonel took Lady Darnell to the drawing-room, and sat between her and Grace, while Miss Darnell accompanied the other side of the snug oval table in solitude. Sir Allan and his daughter were in high spirits, full of old reminiscences, hunting and horses, Grace's ponies and Grace's dogs, which seemed to be legion, the old men and women who had died since the colonel went back to India, the changes in the village, the new schoolhouse. "'Talking of schools, how is it you have not told me anything about Paris and your experiences there?' said the colonel. "'It must have been a tremendous change from Darnell to the Bois de Boulogne.' Grace blushed furiously and was silent for a moment or two. "'Did you like Passy and your French schoolmistress?' asked the colonel. "'I detested being sent there,' replied Grace, flashing an angry glance at her aunt, whom she had never forgiven for that act of interference, which had in some wise changed the girl's destiny, and I saw no reason why I should be sent to school at my age. But I got to like the place pretty well afterward.' Madame Sartori is a silly old woman, but she did not ill-treat us or interfere with us much. Her house was Liberty Hall, and I was sent there to be drilled and trained as if it had been a reformatory. That was a capital joke. She laughed a bitter little laugh, and her voice had a hard tone which Colonel Stukeley did not like. Was this his sweet igneous Gracie, the girl who was the soul of simplicity and truth? He felt that there was a change, an evil change, wrought by that accursed Parisian school. He had always hated Paris, he had always hated girls' schools. If heaven had given him daughters, he would have let them grow up in the meadows, like those Jersey cows, in the hunting field, on the river. He would have taught them reading and writing, perhaps, in the winter evenings. No more. He would, at any rate, have reared a healthy brood. "'In my time, Madame Sartori was quite the most perfect person in her ways with girls,' said Dora Darnell. "'Ah, but your time was so very long ago, Aunt Dora,' answered Grace. "'Youth has only learned to live during the last decade. American girls have taught us our rights and how to enjoy them.' "'Gracie!' exclaimed her father with a reproachful look. "'You are not talking like my daughter.' "'I beg your pardon, father,' the girl answered hastily. "'But I always feel mad when people talk to me about that horrid villa at Passy, "'with its stucco gentility and its sham of all kinds.' "'Then I am the offender,' said the colonel, "'for it was I who started the subject. "'I shall be wiser in the future.' "'You were not prepared for the effects of American emancipation,' "'remarked Dora in her soft, girlish voice, "'a voice that had never been heard raised in anger "'within the memory of anybody at Darnell Manor, "'and yet that dove-like murmur was associated "'with some of the bitterest speeches "'that had ever been spoken at Darnell. "'Lady Darnell came to the rescue "'and turned the conversation into a new channel "'by questioning the colonel about his last campaign, "'whereupon the talk became animated again "'and went on pleasantly till the ladies withdrew, "'and the two old friends were sitting opposite each other "'alone in the lamplight. "'Light your cheroot, Weldon.' 
"'I suppose you stick to Colonel Newcomb's old weed, or will you have one of my cigarettes?' inquired Sir Alan, offering his exquisitely embroidered case, the sort of thing with which a man like Alan Darnell is provided to satiety by his womankind. "'And now, dear fellow, tell me frankly, how do you like her?' "'Thank God I can afford to be frank. To see Lady Darnell, for the first time, even, is to like and admire her. She is beautiful, she is charming, she is all that I should wish my old friend's wife to be, only—' "'Only what, Weldon? You have discovered a drawback?' Not to Lady Darnell's merits, but it struck me that her health and spirits are not quite so good as you and her friends would wish. You are right. No, my poor Claire is not in robust health. There is something, a depression, a nervous excitability sometimes. I doubt if Darnell Manor agrees with her. We have lived here too exclusively, perhaps, since our marriage. I have been thinking seriously of taking her to Italy for the winter. No, her spirits are too variable for good health or for ease of mind. But there are reasons, cruel memories of the past, which in a measure account for this. I have not yet told you the story of my marriage, Weldon. You told me very little, only that your marriage was a love-match and that you were supremely happy. That was enough to satisfy your friend. But I should have told you a great deal more if it had not been for my aversion to letter-writing. It was a longish story to write, and a painful one, so I thought it would be easier to tell you all about it when you and I were smoking our cigarettes face to face, as we are to-night. Don't tell me one word if there is a shade of pain in the recital, said the colonel earnestly. I am content to know that Lady Darnell is a good and beautiful woman. I desire to know nothing beyond that. My dear fellow, it will be a relief to talk to you. I want you to appreciate Claire and to understand her, and you can only do that when you know her sad story. The colonel bowed, filled his glass with Leoville. Do you remember hearing, eleven or twelve years ago, of an officer in the 19th Afghanistan's, a man called Mackenzie? The man who shot the sentry? Certainly I remember hearing of him. Everybody heard of him, a terrible case. The man who shot the sentry was my wife's first husband. Good heavens! Yes, he was her first cousin, Stuart Mackenzie, a man who began life brilliantly, who was a celebrity in his way, for two or three seasons as one of the handsomest young men in London. Perhaps that spoiled him. His father died before he was of age, and he succeeded to a handsome fortune which he began to squander directly it came into his possession. Claire's mother was a widow, a woman of the world, had been a beauty, lived only for society, and cared very little for her daughter. I have gathered as much as this from Claire's reluctant admissions, rather than from actual statement, as she has been loath to cast the faintest reproach upon her dead mother." I know the kind of woman, said Stukely, not by any means an uncommon type. Claire was only seventeen, and had not yet been introduced into society, where schoolgirl frocks practiced Beethoven and read Schiller with a good old governess while her mother went to parties. They spent the London season in a West End lodging, and lived for the rest of the year at Torquay, where Mrs. Molyneux, Claire's mother, had a house of her own. The widow's means were limited, and just sufficed for this kind of life, and I dare say she looked forward with dread to the expense of launching a pretty daughter, still more, perhaps, to the idea of being outshone and aged by the daughter's appearance. Anyhow, she kept Claire very close, and when Stuart Mackenzie proposed for his cousin, Mrs. Molyneux received him with open arms and forced on the marriage with all the strength of a mother's influence. Claire, who was at first reluctant, was gradually persuaded to think herself very fond of her cousin. He and she had been playfellows in her childhood, and she had liked him very well then. It was flattering to think that one of the handsomest young men in London was over head and ears in love with her. The idea of immediate escape from the governess, the German poets, and the dullness of London lodgings was pleasanter still. The prospect of a voyage to India was sheer enchantment. The girl gave way. The marriage was hurried on, and the Afghanistans were under sailing orders within six weeks. Claire spent her honeymoon in Italy, and sailed with her husband from Trieste in a great troopship a fortnight after her wedding day, and six months before her eighteenth birthday. Poor child! The life in India was gay and bright enough at the first. There had been rumors of war, but nothing came of those rumors. India was supremely quiet in that long lull which followed the suppression of the mutiny. Gradually, slowly, the sickening truth dawned upon my poor Claire. She had married a profligate, a spendthrift, and a gamester. She shrinks with horror from all memories of that hateful life, yet there have been times when it has seemed a relief to her to talk to me about those days when the overburdened mind has thrown off some part of its load, and at such times I have encouraged her confidences. Her husband was one of the most popular men in India from a social standpoint during those first few years. 
He was brilliant, fascinating, clever, open-handed, but he was a thoroughly bad man all the same, and his wife was the chief sufferer by his vices. Then came a change. Intemperate habits told their usual tale. He grew nervous, excitable, short-tempered, most of all when he had been unlucky at play, and play was his nightly amusement. He became very unpopular with his brother officers, and the feelings of the mess at last came to a point which rendered an exchange inevitable. Mackenzie exchanged from the famous Afghanistans into a line regiment quartered in the south of Ireland. A dreary change, I should think, said Stukely, whose happiest years had been spent under an Indian sun, to whom the ways of Indian life were the familiar ways, and those of Britain strange. A change that wrecked him forever. In India there were some restraining influences—caste, society, the knowledge that the eyes of the great men were upon him—but in that shabby little Irish town there were none. He sunk into a dull apathy, abandoned every ambition of an honourable man, sulked with his wife, was foolishly indulgent one day, brutally harsh to the next, to their only child, a boy of seven, and the wife's solitary consolation. He had spent nearly all his money. He had thrown away all his chances of advancement. He knew this, and the very knowledge that he was a ruined man made him reckless. He drank to drown care, drank till his brain grew sodden and dull, drank until delirium tremens became a chronic malady. Oh, the horror of those days, as Claire describes them, the ever-recurring evil which she dreaded in every hour of her life. She was his nurse when he was ill. She screened him, she apologized for him, she enabled him to keep his position years after his own folly would have forfeited it. They went from station to station, now at home, now abroad, and it was on their return to that dull old town in the south of Ireland that the catastrophe occurred which gave Stuart Mackenzie's name a criminal notoriety. I remember, it was at Mallow the murder occurred. The crime was hardly to be called a murder, for the wretch was mad when it happened. He had been laid up for a week with an attack of delirium tremens, which was a little worse than any previous experience in the same line. His orderly was a good fellow, young, stalwart, plucky, and Claire and the orderly contrived between them to nurse him and to keep everything dark, though his paroxysms were at times so violent as to need all the orderly's strength and all Claire's courage to grapple with him. Things went on like this for a week, by which time both servant and mistress were fairly worn out, while there were no signs of improvement in the patient. The doctor knew what the complaint was, but did not know half the violence of the attack, so careful was Claire to conceal the worst symptoms, a mistake as she discovered afterward. "'I can understand that look in Lady Darnell's face now,' said the colonel meditatively the look of a woman who has suffered intensely in years gone by, and who can never quite forget the old wounds. Perhaps neither Claire nor the servant knew how utterly exhausted they both were by what they had done and gone through in that dreadful week, for when Claire left the man on guard one night and went to her room for a few hours' rest, she had perfect confidence in his watchfulness. The poor fellow dropped asleep at his post. It was a moonlight night in the summer, and Mackenzie's window opened onto a balcony. The trooper had locked the door and put the key in his pocket, but to a man of Mackenzie's athletic training the descent from that first-floor balcony was nothing. He saw his keeper asleep, saw himself unwatched for the first time since his malady had come upon him, and, delighted at the idea of freedom, he got up, dressed himself hastily in trousers and shooting jacket, scaled the balcony, and made for the gates of the barracks. At the gate he was challenged by a sentinel who did not recognize him. Mackenzie did not answer the challenge, and the soldier tried to stop him. He wrenched the gun out of the sentinel's hands and shot him through the head. The sound of the shot in the silence of the night awakened the men in the quarters nearest the gate. There was an alarm, and the sentry was found dead in front of his box. Mackenzie was not found till late on the following afternoon, when he was discovered hiding in a wood five or six miles from the barracks, with the sentry's gun in his hand, stark mad. There was a trial which resulted in Captain Mackenzie's detention during Her Majesty's pleasure, but he only lived a little more than a year after his transference to the county asylum where Claire visited him every week. He never recovered from that shock and the exposure of that night. He sunk into a state of melancholy madness, in which his nights were haunted by horrible dreams, always acting over again the struggle for the gun with the sentry, always shooting him and seeing him fall, shot through the brain, not one sentry but a hundred sentries, till he woke in an agony, seeped in cold sweat which he mistook for blood. He used to tell Claire these dreams, with an awfully graphic power which tortured her. He became singularly mild in those days, driveling an imbecile in his lunacy, save when he was excited by the thought of those nightly visions. 
Claire asked his keeper if he had these dreadful dreams every night, and the man told her he had never known a night to go by without his being awakened by that cry of horror, the sentry. Death came at last, by inches, a gradual extinction of mind and body, disillusion in its most powerful form. What a martyrdom for a wife! Yes, a veritable martyrdom, but her sorrows were not over. She was left poorly off, with one child, her boy, her comfort and consolation in the earlier years of his life, but already, at eight years old, a trouble and anxiety. The child was rebellious, difficult, fitful, alarmingly like his father in person and disposition. Claire's mother was dead, and she stood alone in the world. She dropped the name of Mackenzie and called herself Stuart. She went to a quiet little inland watering place in Mid Wales and devoted herself to her boy, gave up her whole life to the task of training him until it should be time for him to go to a public school. Her own education had been carried further than the average standard by her conscientious German governess, and she was able to prepare her boy for rugby. She made up her mind that he should not be a soldier. She wanted to shield him from the temptations of military life. He went to rugby, she pinching herself to provide the expenses of his maintenance there, and he was expelled in the second year. That was a crushing blow. Then he told her that he had not tried to do well. He had set his heart upon being a soldier, and she had better send him to an army coach to prepare for Woolwich. That profession, and no other, would he work for. She was firm, and the boy was sullen. If he was not to go into the army, he would do nothing. He idled away his life in the little Welsh settlement, amusing himself with any sport that came within his reach—fishing, shooting, a day's hunting now and again, always a trouble and an expense, a care and a grief to the poor mother. But the worst was to come. Before his nineteenth birthday, she had discovered the hereditary taint. Her son was an incipient drunkard. She moved heaven and earth to get him into new surroundings, a more active life. She was told by a medical wiseacre that a new country, an open-air life, would cure him, and after infinite trouble she shipped him off to Queensland, with introductions which provided for his being decently placed at a sheep farmer's when he got there. She heard from him once after his arrival, a letter written in good spirits, full of sanguine ideas of success in his new career. And then followed a silence which has never been broken, but in the account of the wreck of the Earl King, bound from Brisbane to London, there was in the list of passengers lost a young man called Stuart, travelling alone, whose description, obtained by Clare from the Brisbane agent, corresponded very fairly with that of her son, so it is more than probable that the sea has closed over Valentine Stuart. "'Let us hope it is so,' said the Colonel, cheerily. "'A young man with those proclivities could never be anything but a scourge to his mother. For your sake, and for Lady Darnall's, I hope the youth found a watery grave.' There is something very terrible in the idea of death when it takes away someone we love, but there is something uncommonly comfortable in the idea of death when it removes someone we want to get rid of, added the colonel philosophically. It was at Torquay that I met my wife, continued Sir Alan. I went there after a month with the Exmoor Hounds for a few days' visit to an old friend of my father's, vicar of one of the outlying parishes, a man who remembered Hurl Frood and the days of the Oxford Tracts. He had known Clare from her childhood, had prepared her for confirmation, and had married her to the man who blighted her life. I heard the sad story from him before I saw her face. Perhaps sympathy and compassion prepared my heart for loving her. In any case, I fell in love with her at first sight, and I did not leave Torquay till I had won her. I am bold enough to believe that her heart was mine almost from the beginning, but she was constrained by unselfish fears for my welfare, and it was with difficulty I obtained her consent to be my wife with as little delay as possible. She feared the scandal that might arise in my neighbourhood if once that terrible story of her first husband got wind. She reminded me of the uncertainty surrounding her son's fate and the possibility that he was still living, and might be a burden and disgrace to me in the future." I told her that these things were trifles, feathers when weighed in the scale against the gold of true love. In a word, I overruled all her objections, laughed her fears to scorn, and in six weeks after our first meeting the dear old vicar married us, and we started in the dull grey November weather for our honeymoon tour across the Cornish moors, and along the wild sea coast from Tintagel to the Lizard. Oh, those happy days in the little inn at the land's end, beside the roaring Atlantic, alone, remote from the world and its ways. I shall never forget the sweetness, the perfect confidence and love of that time, it has grown and strengthened since then. It will go on increasing till I die. And there has been no cloud on your happiness at Darnall? None, or only the slightest summer clouds, hardly worth talking about. 
My marriage was naturally a blow to Dora, who had been a mistress of Darnell Manor ever since my stepmother's death. She talked at first of going away, living abroad, buying a house in Salisbury for the sake of the cathedral service, she said. But she stayed on, interfered a good deal with my wife on the management of the house and servants, and was obviously unhappy. "'You ought to have got rid of her, Alan,' said the colonel, frankly. "'These ménage à never answer. It would have been happier for you and your half-sister if she had set up an independent establishment, were it even within a mile of your gates.' I was seriously meditating making her the offer of a handsome addition to her income in order to enable her to live independently without any diminution of the comfort she has enjoyed here. "'So like you, my dear Alan, to be seriously meditating a step which ought to have been taken once before you began to meditate,' said the colonel, laughing. "'Well, I do not want to be unbrotherly, you see, and Dora had kept my house so admirably. However, while I was thinking of cutting the knot of the difficulty my way, my dear Claire cut it her way, which was much more generous. She came down to breakfast one morning with her little Morocco key-casket in one hand and gave it over to Dora in my presence.' "'I am a very bad housekeeper,' she said, "'and I have no love for government, "'while you are a superb manager "'and have rather a liking for the reins of power, "'so why should we live uncomfortably "'when we might live happily each other in her own taste? "'From this day forth I renounce "'all administrative rights and privileges at Darnell Manor.' "'How did Miss Darnell take that?' "'Hardly so pleasantly as she ought to have done. "'She sneered at poor Clare's renunciation "'of domestic management "'as if it had been an assertion "'of intellectual superiority. "'I dare say, looking after servants and ordering dinners, "'does seem a very degrading occupation to a person of your superior mind,' she said, "'but I have always remembered that my brother's comfort depends on these vulgar details.' "'She made me very angry.' "'I should have taken her by the scruff of the neck and pitched her out of doors,' interjected Colonel Stukeley. "'I did not go quite so far as that, but I gave Dora a bit of my mind there and then, "'and I think her cold ham and chicken that morning was rather a hot breakfast.' She is always sweetest after a good licking, so after breakfast she took the keys as meekly as a lamb, and promised that she would prove worthy of Lady Darnell's confidence. "'You are much too generous, and too indulgent to the servants,' she said. "'That has been your only fault as a housekeeper.' "'A change had come over the spirit of her dream,' laughed the colonel. Ten o'clock, by Jove. Hadn't we better go to the ladies?' End of chapter 2